Well, hey there, everyone. Welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to be talking about living the dream. And we have some guests who are, in fact, kind of living their dreams in one way or another. We have the hilarious Ian Carmel. He is the co-head writer of The Late Late Show with James Corden. Uh, we also have Al Letson, a radio host. He hosts the show Reveal. Uh, we also have Caitlin Kunkel, who is a satirist and a writer. She's also the writer for this radio show. She has a new book out that is hilarious. Can't wait to tell you about that. And uh, we've also got music from Laura Gibson, one of our very favorite musical guests on the show. Now, on the subject of dreams, I have to admit that I've always been a little skeptical about how actually meaningful our dreams are. Like when you go to bed at night and you have a bunch of weird thoughts in your mind, and you wake up the next morning and you try to ask yourself, huh, what did all of that mean about the real world? My thought was always, it means nothing about the real world, but there's actually some new information about that that I wanted to talk over with our announcer on the show, Elena Passarello, and the rest of the crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. And so we kicked off things that way. Take a listen to this. I read this article uh, in The New Yorker recently, not to brag. (laughs) And it was about dreams and what our brain is doing when we are dreaming. And it's actually very interesting. It's like our, bo- our brain's way of trying to replay things that were traumatic for us. And your body is supposed to not be releasing very much of this chemical called noradrenaline so okay. that you can relive things, but in a way that feels a little less scary. Huh. And you come out of it and you've hopefully processed it a little bit and you sort of do it over and over again. First of all, I'm going back and thinking about all my dreams now really differently because I thought it was just craziness in there, but it's my brain trying to do something. Are you a crazy dreamer? Do you have a lot of like, like multiple dreams or those are the clowns? I'm one kind of those of people that doesn't remember a lot of my dreams, but I will tell you my wife remembers her dreams. <laughs> and even though I'm now a little bit more, I think I believe in the idea of dreams a little more. What I'm still, what my personal jury is still out on is this question of like, if you have a dream where you have an argument with someone, is it cool to be mad at them in real life over a thing (laughs) they did in the dream? Because this is hypothetically something that's happened to me many times in my life. Uh, (laughs) I feel like it's not cool for me to be in trouble for something I did while possibly being played by Pee Wee Herman. But it meant you. It was Pee Wee Herman, but it was you. Like, have you ever had a dream, like maybe with your significant other or someone else, where something happens and then it affects how you feel about them, at least for a little while? Not my significant other, but other people. But I don't know. This is probably not going to go to a good place. Like, I, I don't have, I don't remember a lot of my dreams. I'm a, I dream about shapes or nothing. Um, my partner had a dream the other day that me and Joan Didion were at the Home Depot, so I wish that was true. <laughs> See, that's great. He is dreaming that you're living your best life. Yeah. My wife is dreaming that I'm off doing God knows what, and it's not with Joan Didion. Sometimes I have smoochy dreams about other people, and then I see them, and then I'm like, I, I, that residual... Uh, uh, memory is a part of it. So that, I mean, that affects yeah. my real life. It's kind of like, oh no, you know, but then it's not real. And then you have to remind yourself that you didn't smooch, yeah. you know, Tommy Lee Jones or whatever. That is the weirdest example you could have picked. <laughs> uh, Oscar Wilde said the most terrifying sentence in the English language to hear from someone else is, I had a really interesting dream last night. Because no matter what follows, it's going to be boring? Well, kind or? of, because I mean, I think there's also a line in a, in like a built to spill song or it's like, nobody wants to hear about your dreams unless they're in them Mm. like a dream is like if someone's telling me about a dream i I generally am not that interested but then if they're and then you showed up i'm like uh yeah what happened next (laughs) like you get very invested in someone else's dream if you are in the dream is it beyond your significant other do other people have dreams about you and tell tell you about them i have not heard that much from other people because it'd be interesting if you were doing the same thing in lots of different people's dreams you would learn something about (laughs) You know, I think like if you're always at the Home Depot, that's yeah. how the world sees you, right? Or whatever. I'm pretty sure that's the plot of a Christopher Nolan film. <laughs> that's either Inception or Memento or The Matrix. But if I'm showing up in everyone's dreams, let me know because I'm apparently a time lord. Um, 
We have a guest waiting to come on stage who knows all about living their dream. That is because she is the author of an awesome new book, which is called New Erotica for Feminists. She also happens to be the writer for this show. So we'll find out if doing that is a dream or a nightmare for her. Please welcome Livewire's own Caitlin Kunkel to the stage. Hi, wow. Caitlin. Welcome to Livewire. People are very excited that you're here. Wow. I am so excited to be here, too. Okay, so, Caitlin, you um, are, are the writer for the show, so you're often thinking about how we're going to introduce people to get them out on stage. You okay. write these fun games and quizzes that we uh, subject people to. Uh, how does it feel to now be the person who is sitting in the guest chair talking to us? Well, sometimes people don't want to play the games I write, and I never really understood that. And now that I'm here and you could launch literally anything at me, I'm a little more empathetic, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me about how this book, Neurotica for Feminists, got started. I know it was a piece in McSweeney's. Mm -hmm. So with three other women, I run a website called The Belladonna, which is comedy and satire written by women. And we were just riffing in a G-chat one day, like we do most days, stealing time from our jobs. Not this job. No, no, no. <laughs> and we were talking about potential ways to monetize the site, and someone joked that they don't know how sponsorships work. And they said, oh, I, I think it's just that Tom Hardy pulls up at your house with a box truck full of LaCroix and drops it off and plays with your rescue dog, and that's that. <laughs> and from there, someone said, oh, that sounds like porn for Brooklyn women. <laughs> and it just like right away, you, you, when you have a good comedic idea like that, that a lot of people can riff off of, we started to just write jokes like crazy. Then we all did just like stop working for the rest of the day. <laughs> and we just wrote a ton of jokes. And within a day, we had a piece. We sent it to McSweeney's. And two weeks later, a million people had read it. Wow. A million people? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think it's time for over 500 people to hear it on the radio. <laughs> Could you read us the piece? Yes, I'll read you. I just basically paraphrased the, one, the first one, but okay. I'll read you one that I wrote that is very close to my heart. Okay. The pizza delivery car pulls up outside. It's right on time and so, so hot. <laughs> the delivery guy hands it over with an appropriate smile and says, enjoy. I hope you're not sharing it with anyone if you don't want. I believe everyone is in control of their own bodies and should never be shamed for what they decide to eat or not eat. <laughs> he makes no effort to come inside because that would be weird and alarming. <laughs> I smile and give him a reasonable tip for his normal behavior as I shut the door. Time for the crown. <laughs> Kaylin Kunkel reading from New Erotica for Feminists. This thing took the internet by storm. It did. What was that like for you as a, as a writer, uh, you know, to be part of this group that created something and then all of a sudden it is just, as they say, going viral? It, well, we write all the time, but none of us had ever had something go this fast, like wildfire. We started to get messages like, oh, it's being shared in my mom group with 800,000 members. It's being shared... I, I learned there's apparently many Jeff Goldblum fan groups on Facebook. <laughs> like you say that like it's surprising. <laughs> well, we, someone said it's being shared in my group, and then someone else on Twitter was like, oh, I just put it in mine, and we we're like, there's more than one? <laughs> so we wrote Jeff Goldblum into the book at that point. <laughs> Had you, have you gotten any indication of if he knows he's in the book? I mean, we tag him on social media pretty much constantly, but we've yet to get a response. <laughs> um, so after, after the piece, like, became super popular on the internet and among many Jeff Goldblum-related entities. <laughs> you guys got a book deal. We did. Um, and, and so then you are, all of a sudden, you got to take this thing that was, uh, you know, sort of short essay and turn it into a whole book. And you're doing it with three co-authors. Yes. <laughs> what was that process like? Uh, well, they say if you don't have enough time to think about how hard something is, you just kind of plow forward and keep going. So we got an email um, from an editor in the UK saying, hey, have you considered turning this into a book? And two days later, we had a lit agent, a deal in the UK. Two weeks later, we had a deal in the US. And then it was March 24th, and they were like, great, this book is due June 1st. 
And you also continued writing whatever three funny things I say per show <laughs> were written by Caitlin Kunkel right here. We got to take a quick break. This is Livewire. We'll be back with Caitlin. Stay with us. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection. And I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Foley sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, it's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We're talking about living the dream this week. And we have Caitlin Kunkel here. She is not only the writer for Livewire, but also one of the authors of this uh, awesome new book, New Erotica for Feminists. Um, so we've picked this, this theme of living the dream. And here you are, like you, you writing things, writing funny things, and then all of a sudden you are part of this group that writes a funny thing that becomes like huge on the internet. Millions of people read it. Then you get a book deal, and now you have to actually like write the book in mm -hmm. a month or two? We, wrote, we had about three months to do the first draft, and then we had about a month to edit. So what we did is we, so the book starts off, every single vignette starts off like erotica, and then it flips into a comment on something in society that we wish was not a fantasy. So <laughs> equal pay, <laughs> equal representation in Congress, you know, not having to worry you would lose your job if you get pregnant. So we started a document that was just erotica stuff. So <laughs> certain words, certain scenarios, firefighters, cops, uh, a lot of words like throbbing went into that document, and then we started a document. You rarely document. see like throbbing and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> yes. All in the same <laughs> fantasy. I mean, you know, again, everybody gets to like what they like, but you were bringing together what have been historically thought of as kind of not related ideas, I guess. Yeah, we joke that like the angry feminist isn't typically like an erotica character. <laughs> But can you read another one from the book so people can get a, a and, you know, just anything with throbbing in it will do. Or RBG. <laughs> yeah. So this is from, from the workplace section. She's such a MILF, the venture capitalist says, staring longingly at the woman, striding confidently out of the conference room. Seriously. Our CFO gives a long, drawn-out whistle of approval. Now that is a mom I'd like to fund. Her user acquisition and retention rates are simply unparalleled. Nice. So that one is, so we have the erotica doc, and then we have the rage doc, where we write down everything we're mad about in the world. I worked in that one mostly. <laughs> and one of the things was, you know, I don't know the exact stat, but something like only 2% of venture capitalist funds go to companies funded by women. So we want to touch on things like that. And when they are funded, they're at much lower rates than companies started by men. So we would combine the erotica doc with the rage doc and go from there. That was like how you generate, it's almost, I, mean, I don't want to say it's an algorithm because that, that like acts like it, you guys weren't working creatively on it, but it was somewhat algorithmic like that. I don't read a lot of erotica, so I needed to, I needed some words to kind of like get me going <laughs> with each one. Um, and then some of the other co-authors, Carrie, Fiona, and Brooke, they were really good at like massaging my angry screeds into like kind of sexy things. <laughs> <laughs> 
Teamwork makes the dream work. That's kind of a, a bit of feminist erotica in itself, right? Yeah. A rage, a rage-filled woman, uh, and then her sisters come and massage her rage into beautiful art. <laughs> Honestly, that that is erotica. That's what I want. Um, we're talking to Caitlin Kunkel. She is one of the authors of the new book, A New Erotica for Feminists. I was reading the book like last week, and I have to say that because the word uh, erotica is uh, prominently displayed on the cover, mm-hmm. I was like, I didn't want everyone at the Sabaro in Denver, to th- don't judge me, to think I'm just reading regular erotica in a public place. Have there, has there been any misunderstanding about what the book is about because of that word being part of it? I think so. We do have a subtitle on here, Satirical Fantasies of Love, Lust, and Equal Pay. Um, my sister, and there's a very <laughs> sexy slice of pizza on the cover as well. We did. We debated with like what that icon should be to show like it's not actually sexual. So we went through like a bunch of things that seemed too sexual. And eventually I was like, well, I think the hottest thing is pizza. And <laughs> It went on the book. <laughs> uh, my sister was buying the book down in Florida, and an older gentleman in line, I guess, saw the cover and said, oh, I guess people just buy that in the open now, huh? <laughs> but she very nicely explained to him what it was, and he said, that sounds great. Congratulations to your sister. And then they worked it out. <laughs> um, are you, uh, is it your goal with this and, and your co-writers, is, is it the goal to actually change some culture with this book? Definitely, and we actually end with a section called 14 Ways to Make Our Fantasies a Reality because we do think it's important, well, obviously, it's a book of jokes. We want you to laugh. We've had some people read it and say at the end, you know, I read it and I laughed, and then I felt really sad afterwards because there are things in here that shouldn't have to be fantasies. So one of the things in here is a 50-50 Congress, gender balance, and you read that out loud and people laugh hysterically, (laughs) and then you stop and think, why is that so outrageous? So I do think there are ones in here that we hope that people will think, like, why is that something so far out of our reach? Why can't it be a thing we actually have, like, good parental leave? Um, We go back and we look at some Bible stories and historical women in history, and we kind of recenter them in their own stories. So in our book, Juliet lives to be 98 years old, and she's a youth counselor. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we hope that it will cause people to both, like, examine the current day and things that they could do to maybe change things. And even the four of us as very feminist writers, we run a feminist website. Um, There were times when we realized that our own perceptions were not big enough. They weren't feminist enough. And we had to try harder to like be comedically exaggerated. Were those hard conversations to have within your group? Because it's one thing to think of yourself as being a feminist or being as, you know, as progressive and as big minded about things as you can be. And then somebody like checks your lack of doing that and it must be like can't you save that for like the enemy like how can you be how could you be saying that about me in this google chat i think it's good actually i think we all have blind spots and areas where we're like oh yeah i got that i don't have to worry about that i understand what's going on you know in gender parity um and then i would read some stats or one of the other women would be like well the vignette you wrote isn't accurate because of blank and i would be like oh okay Damn, I need to do some more reading. I think that's the message I want everyone to do. Do some more reading. Read a book. <laughs> like, really, like, try to understand a little bit more about what's going on and how you might be able to make small changes in your everyday life. Um, there's one in here that is very controversial. Um, it's about someone pushing an elevator button and it lights up, and then a man comes up behind them and pushes the button again just to make sure. And when we talk about that, you see like a lot of the people in the audience blank face, and then you see like six people be like, that happens to be every single day at my office. And I've asked my coworkers to trust that I know how elevators work, and it hurts my feelings every single day, and I don't know what to do. So that was one that it seems small and silly, uh, but people, we know how to use elevators. (laughs) Caitlin Kunkel, everyone. The book is New Erotica for Feminists. Satirical fantasies of love, lust, and equal pay. Sweater season is here, but before it's time to unpack the knitwear, Alaska Airlines suggests one more taste of summer. Alaska Airlines now offers low fares on non-stops from Portland to Maui, Hawaii Island, Kauai, and Oahu. Plus, included in that low fare is assigned seating, over 400 free movies and TV shows, and power outlets at your seat, 
in case your battery is low and the movie isn't over. Aloha, Alaska Airlines. Hey, it's Luke. Uh, do not go anywhere because coming up, we've got a conversation with Al Letson. You probably know him as the host of Reveal. He actually got his start in public radio through a contest. When I first heard about the contest, I actually thought it was going to be a folk singing contest. It was not, it turns out, a folk music contest. But that is how he got his start here in public radio. So we've got more on that coming up in just a few here on Livewire from PRI. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon this week. We're talking about living the dream, and we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater, uh, in a sentence, what is their dream life? And Elena, you've been collecting up some of those submissions. Yeah, they're uh, pretty good. Yeah, what yeah. you got? Uh, here's one from Brian. Brian's dream life is a combination of backcountry camping, motorcycle travel, and exotic travel. And then uh, in the similar ink, a similar green ink, maybe from the same pen, here's one from Liz. Spending my life gazing into my beloved's eyes, he wrote some <laughs> about motorcycle trips and travel. <laughs> I like you guys, wherever you are. <laughs> are you guys okay? Do we need to send you a bottle of wine or something? Uh, what else? Do you got, Elena? Here's one from Hillary. Time traveling for every meal. Especially. <laughs> so, uh, an example, going to Italy for dinner. So, basically just be... But a, at a different time in Italy? Isn't that just traveling? Yeah, it's just... I guess it's more, it's more teleportation. Yeah. Right, right. Or whatever that thing was on Star Trek. You try to get to Italy before Marty McFly eats the spaghetti? <laughs> I don't know what's the... But... Yeah. Okay, so traveling, teleporting... Yeah. To, to a different... So you can always teleport to your favorite region. So if you... Instead of saying, I feel like having Mexican food tonight... You could have it in Let's go Mexico. to Northwest. You could just go to Oaxaca and, wow. and Nosh. Do you know that for a long time... And I'm talking up until about five years ago, I didn't know how Oaxaca was spelled... <laughs> And I thought people are really into whatever this Oaxican situation is. <laughs> and I would hear everyone talk about Oaxacan food, and I would see Oaxacan cookbooks, and I never <laughs> put the two together. Okay, one more. Christie's dream life. I work at a library and have a steampunk tiny house. <laughs> I like it. Dream big, Christie. Dream big. That is an extremely Portland dream life. <laughs> If there's a way you can kayak to the steampunk tiny house, I think you've, you've really brought together most of the major occupations here in Portland. All right, this is Livewire from PRI. We're talking about living the dream this week. Our next guest, who grew up right here in Portland, Oregon, had his dreams come true recently. Not when he was named head writer for The Late Late Show with James Corden. Although that was probably pretty cool, too. No, it was when he realized he has managed to become legit friends with members of the Portland Trailblazers basketball team. Please welcome Ian Carmel to Livewire. Hello, Portland! Yeah! Portland, Oregon, top! the food chain where champions are born. Give it up for yourselves, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I have a girlfriend, which is weird because I look like I'm in the middle of a real bad breakup. It's good to have a girlfriend when you're a guy like me because you get exposed to all the wonderful soaps that women have. Women have much better soap than men. Men's soap is terrible. Men's soap isn't even ever named after anything that smells good, you know? Men's soap is all named after violent ideas. Every soap for men, its name is like Arctic Blast or Desert Storm, right? Or like, I've never seen my father cry and my son will never see me cry. Yeah, it's, it's soap though. 
Even if they do name like uh, men's soap after something that smells good, they can never just call it the thing that it smells like. If a men's soap smells like roses, they can't just call it roses. They have to like masculine it up. They have to call it like broses, right? <laughs> bro roses. <laughs> I don't ever want to smell like bro roses. Bro roses sounds like a nickname that they use for herpes at Oregon State University. <laughs> Oh, dude, you hear about Chad? No, what? He got bro roses. <laughs> oh, no. Which Chad? <laughs> there's a lot of Chads, folks. The crux of the joke is there's a lot of guys named Chad. You get it. I like having a girlfriend. I don't have to use any of my old dating tricks anymore. I used to have schemes that I would use, you know? Because I know what I look like. Like, I'm a handsome guy, but I'm a fat, handsome guy. I'm a handsome, I'm a handsome fat, handsome fats. I'm a handsome fat, the legendary 1930s blues musician, handsome fats, that's me. <laughs> but I know what I look like. So here's the thing, after a couple of dates with a woman, usually what I would do is I'll text her a picture of me from when I was a cute little kid. Because I was a very cute little kid and I'll send her that picture it's kind of like a genetic thirst trap, right? <laughs> Just to kind of be like, look, I know I messed it up. <laughs> However, knowing what we now know about corn syrup, <laughs> you and me could have a cute little kid, you know? I'm glad to be off Tinder. Tinder will introduce you to brand new ways to get your feelings hurt that you didn't even know existed before. <laughs> I matched with a woman on Tinder and we were sending messages back and forth. It was very flirtatious and fun. I was very excited about it. And then she sent me the following message. She said to me, you're cute. You're like a chubby Jack Black. <laughs> Jack Black is a fat person. <laughs> She told me I was cute like the chubby version of a fat person. <laughs> and the worst thing is, she's right. She's 100% right. I do look like a chubby or Jack Black. It was a direct hit. Like, if you saw me on Us Weekly, you'd be like, oh, Jack, come on, dude, get it together. <laughs> I grew this mustache for fun, and it has been messing my life up. I'm Jewish. I'm 100% Jewish. Bar mitzvah and everything, and I don't look at, at all. I look so Italian, it's crazy right now. I look like the guy on the cover of a pizza box, you know what I mean? It's like, mwah, just like mama used to make. I look like I've never had a meatball that was anything but spicy, you know what I mean? Like if the Olive Garden had bouncers. Your boy. thing in comedy, Portland, Oregon, and surrounding areas, and everyone who's listening. <laughs> now that certain people in positions of power and entertainment are getting in trouble for their terrible actions, people will come up to you and be like, uh-oh, are you nervous? You're a white guy. You're a straight white guy. They're coming for you, huh? Right? Right? Huh? You? They're coming for you. <laughs> Aren't they? For you, though? They're coming. I don't know why my talking to a white guy voice is the whitest voice pod, but they're calling <laughs> It's so weird. People think like it's a bad time to be like a white guy in comedy. That's crazy. If anything, there has never been a better time to be a straight white guy. There has never been a better time to be a straight white guy. Because the bar... To be considered one of the good ones <laughs> is so low that you can step over it accidentally <laughs> on your way to the floor length mirror that you use to pat yourself on the back. Here's how easy it is to be one of the good ones. Eminem is one of the good ones. <laughs> Thank you so much, I've been Ian Carvel. Ian Carmel, everybody.
Hi. Hello. <laughs> We're talking uh, this week about living the dream. And uh, mm. congratulations, you're the co-head writer of The Late Late Show Thank with you. James yeah. Corden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what, is an, what is an actual day of doing that look like? Uh, well, we have to service the car that they do carpool karaoke in. Yeah. So I'm, I'm underneath that at 6 a.m. changing the oil. Sure. Putting different spark plugs in there. You Check know. the CV joint. Making a chamomile tea for James, who is singing voices intact. No, uh, we get it. We get it at like 8:30. We write monologue jokes for like three hours or so. We comment on whatever it is the president's been up to, and then uh, everyone goes off in their own ways and works on different projects. Sometimes it is carpool karaoke. Sometimes it's the different sketches we do. Um, you know, we only have a 10-person writer room. Where, like, you know, Colbert, Fallon, they have, like, 20 people, sometimes more. And, you know, we're trying to go blow for blow with those shows, so it's, like, pretty intense. We've got an amazing room, and uh, everybody's working really hard all the time. Yeah. What's it like to have your job be a deadline-driven comedy job, and you have emotions and That's, levels? And, yeah. Like, what's the strategy for a, a not-funny day? It's both a burden and relief because, you know, uh, at some level, you want things to be as good as they can be. And so when it's four, you know, we tape at five o'clock every day. So when it's four o'clock and something is, you know, not quite there, it's frustrating, you know. But at the same time, you have to make a show every day at five o'clock. So you can't be too dear with things. And that's like kind of nice. You're like, all right, that's on. That's on TV. Hopefully people like it. We'll try to do better with the next one. You know, right. it's like you're a lot like Lucy and Ethel. You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> on the conveyor belt? <laughs> on the conveyor belt a lot of the time. Uh, where it's just like, this is a disaster, but at least you're eating chocolate. You know, so. Um, so do you find that it's, you have this job, you're a co-head writer of a national television show that's built around the idea of being funny. When you're writing jokes or being in bits or doing, when you're living your dream, does it feel the way that you, as young Ian Carmel, growing up here in Portland, thought it was going to be like? No. I never dreamed. I just kept working, and then the next thing happened. I, that's, I know you were talking about dream, but like, I just started doing comedy, and then I did shows and shows and shows, and then opportunities would present themselves. I, maybe I should have, but I never, I never had like some like, you know, like uh, board up in my house where it was like, one day, I'll be up there trying to figure out how Cardi B is funny. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> that was, that, it was never my dream. So what my life feels like is a lot of work. And then occasionally I get to come home to Portland and it's, and it's wonderful, you know? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, when I start living my dream, I'll let you know. Well, as a comedian, you're legally required to have a podcast yep. uh, under the uh, Comedian Podcast Act of 2017. Right, 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 right. And so you have one, and it's called All Fantasy Everything. And what you do is sort of, you do fantasy draft of pop culture. Can, can you give us an example? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, we'll do like, we'll fantasy draft anything. So like sandwiches. <laughs> and, and then we go like in four, you know, four people, each take a turn drafting sandwiches. So maybe the Reuben goes first. And then somebody takes a Cubano, and then like some idiot takes a Thanksgiving sandwich, you know, where they put cranberry sauce on it. Cranberry sauce has no place on a sandwich. And if you disagree, you belong in prison. And then it's like <laughs> a fourth sandwich someone will pick, and then it'll go all the way back around. We'll do that. We'll do Nicolas Cage movies. We'll do hip-hop <laughs> songs from the 90s. We'll do movies on, that got under 30% on Rotten Tomatoes but had an Academy Award nominee in them. Anything. <laughs> And we just take turns drafting them. And it's really just a facade to have fun conversations with your friends and passively interview people. We've had amazing, we've had like John Cryer on, Kamel Nanjiani, Roxanne Gay. It's been fun. You should check it out. What? After you listen to all of the Livewire episodes, circle back around and then check out All Fantasy Everything. That's how you do it, people. Yeah. Ian Carmel. Thank you. Our next guest just won a DuPont Award this week for his amazing investigative radio show, Reveal. Back in 2017, though, another of his dreams came true when he was selected for the DC Comics Writers Workshop, which is a program that trains participants to write characters like Batman and Wonder Woman. We are so excited to have him here. Please welcome the multi-talented Al Letson, the Livewire.
It's a lot of people here. I know you, you're usually hosting Reveal, which is this amazing uh, investigative radio show, but you're typically in a studio. A dark studio. Yeah, this is a real change of pace here. We got a bunch of people. There's a lot of live energy. But your background is as a poet, actor, yeah. stage performer. So I guess you're probably comfortable in this environment. I love being on stage. I'm a ham. I'm, I'm a middle child. I have to be on stage. Your dad was a minister, right? My dad was a, is a minister. My, da- my dad is a minister. My mom would hit me with a Bible still today if, if, <laughs> if, if I was around her and she didn't like what I said. Really? Oh, my God, yeah. She would, like, I mean, she's like quick draw McGraw way. <laughs> The question really, though, is like, was it a King James? Oh, no, it was like one of those family Bibles. Oh, Do you wow. remember back in the day when you had a Bible and you put all your family information in it? Yes. I mean, I know like Portland is not the most religious town in the world, but I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and like Bibles were Imagine like, like the Moosewood cookbook. <laughs> I'm trying exactly. to translate it go. for the Portland audience. There, thank you. I have no idea what that is, but I'm just going to go with it. I'm just going to roll so yeah, like I mean, like it's like a, it's it's a big big document. Yes. It's heavy, and yeah, oh man, no, nah, she would light me up with it. It works. <laughs> um, you you were like I mentioned, you had a background in playwriting. You're a poet, mm-hmm. and then you got into public radio through this thing that I'm going to be honest with you. When I heard about it years ago, I thought that is a crazy idea that will never work. So that's what I thought too. <laughs> like, I thought it was the most ridiculous idea. I actually, when I, so, so I'm sorry, I cut your, your story That was off. it, but, but we should tell people it's called the Public Radio Talent Quest, mm-hmm. which let's be honest, I work in public. It's sort of a little oxymoronic. But it was this sort of, uh, not to be reductive, it was sort of the American Idol of public radio. We went to find some really awesome people and get them in public radio and get them a public radio show. And I thought, that's no way to find hosts. And they found you and Glenn Washington. Yeah, yeah. No, like when I first heard about the contest, I actually thought it was going to be a folk singing contest. Like, I, <laughs> I, I heard it was public radio's American Idol, and I thought there was going to be folk singing. But I, I got addicted to the gateway drug of, of uh, This American Life when I was younger. And, um, right? So they uh, they had this contest. I entered. what did you have to do to progress through the various like uh, you know rounds of this contest? It was it was a lot. Like I remember one of the big things we had to do is that we had to read a script live on air, uh, and that was the one that freaked me out the most because I'm dyslexic, um, and so I was really freaked out about it. But you know um, I'm the son of a preacher man, and it worked. You faked it till you maked it? Damn right. I just made up words and kept going. No one knew. Yeah. <laughs> so. And then your, you, uh, your first show you had was uh, State of the Reunion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you have Reveal. What, what's the difference be- in, between those two shows? Oh, God. Like, State of the Reunion was Obama and all the hope, and Reveal is dealing with all the trauma of Trump. I mean, like, if you really listen to the two shows... Uh, when I was doing State of the Reunion, it was all about uh, finding communities that were struggling through something and how people in those communities were making change. Um, and so that show was, was, it was a hopeful show. Um, we won a Peabody with it and all that jazz. Yeah. Um, you won a Peabody Award with that one. You just won a DuPont Award mm-hmm. for Reveal. What are yeah. you doing in Emeryville, California? I have to be really honest that uh, when it comes to Reveal, the people that I work with are amazing. I work with some of the best investigative journalists. Uh, but, like, where do the stories come from? How, how do you decide what is worth revealing and what isn't? Like, how, what's the editorial process? And what is yeah, your job as the host? Because My you know. job, so I think that uh, where we find stories, number one, is we get a lot of partners who submit stories to us. Uh, the, the biggest things that we think about as far as like what we're going to pick is what stories are going to have impact. Uh, we're thinking a lot about like the targets that we choose. Like right now, um, the episode out this week or last week was with uh, a reporter, Emily Schwing, who uh, found out that um, the Catholic Church was sending priests who were abusing kids to native communities in Alaska. And then after they got kicked out of Alaska, they got to retire at Gonzaga University. And so for us, that's kind of like, uh, it sounds horrible, but that's the perfect reveal story, as in like we have a lot of impact going in there, like we're revealing things that people don't know about, uh, but also our targets are big. 
Um, because I think that when you go for like smaller targets, you don't get as much impact. You don't get as much um, people talking about the, the type of work that you're doing. So, you know, that type of thing. That's what we think about a lot. And I think of my job as the host is kind of walking the audience through some tough stuff. Um, the way I use my tone in the show, I try to stand in for the listener. Like, for example, um, I was doing some vocals today before I, I came out here. And um, the story just, it made me so ridiculously mad. But I can't put in the script, like, this thing makes me so ridiculously mad. So it's all about, like, fixing my tone so that the audience understands that, like, this is outrageous. And so that they can kind of wrap their heads around, like, where we're going with it. So I think about that a lot. So I, I try to be the proxy for the audience. And then when I have, um, like, contentious interviews, like, I've interviewed... Roger Stone, who Roger Stone was the hardest interview I've ever done. He is he is brilliant and evil. So you've got like those two things, you'll get lost because I mean there was at one point in that interview where I felt like I was drowning in the middle of the ocean. But you know, so like when I'm doing those type of interviews, it's really about like holding people accountable. So it's like two 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 things I'm thinking about a lot. Uh, we're talking to Al Letson right now. His radio show is Reveal. This radio show is Livewire from PRI. And we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, special thanks this episode to Carol Friedman of Oakland, California, and Stephanie Uke of Beaverton, Oregon. Carol and Stephanie are part of the Livewire member community. What does that mean? That means they generously support this show with a donation each month. And we are very thankful for that support because it is genuinely what helps us keep this whole thing going. A huge thanks from me and from the rest of you, let's be honest, to Carol and Stephanie. Thank you for supporting Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. With Elena Passarello and our friend Al Letson from Reveal, um, a lot of people found out about you actually not through your very successful uh, radio show, but because you were involved in this moment where you you sort of um, well you you dove on top of a white supremacist who was being beaten at an event. Can you kind of describe what exactly happened and what the aftermath of that was? This was a kind of a big story. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was in August of, what, 2017, I think? Charlottesville had just happened, and, you know, it was in the news. Everybody was talking about it. And uh, there was talk that there were going to be two rallies in Berkeley and in San Francisco. This is like two weeks later. Um, and Reveal decided that we were going to cover it. But what happened is the, um, the white supremacists didn't really show up. Uh, what ended up happening was like a lot of people were out there protesting against white supremacy. So it was primarily a anti-racism, uh, and there was a lot of Antifa people there as well. Um, I was standing there with Antifa, like recording it, and then Joey Gibson from Patriot Prayer kind of runs towards them with his arms up. They start chasing Joey Gibson out of the park across the street. Joey gets pulled in by the police, and then I see this guy out of the corner of my eye who, uh, I didn't know who he was. He, he was just there with a camera, and somebody uh, hollered, that's the guy, and then like, Five or six Antifa jumped on top of him and started beating him with flagpoles and really, you know, I mean, they were putting it on him. And I, I just, you know, made a really quick decision and thought, like, this guy's going to die if I don't do something. And the next thing I knew, uh, I pushed somebody out of the way and got on top of him. And then somebody else came over and it kind of broke the spell and everybody let the guy up. I didn't know this at the time, but the guy that I protected, Keith Campbell, had been antagonizing Antifa for a really long time. If, if I had known all this information, I don't know if I would have done the same thing. Wow. Um, but, well, because like he was kind of asking for it. I don't think that anybody should get beat down in public like that. And I, if, if it was a one-on-one -on -one fight, I wouldn't have got involved. I heard you interview him after this whole thing, which was really powerful. Um, what, what did you take away from that conversation? And, and as much as you can tell, what do you think he took away from the experience? Um, the thing that I thought about a lot is that in America, when we have 
a conflict that has race involved in it, what we always want is we want that kumbaya moment that makes us all feel good. It like takes, um, it makes white people feel like, okay, it's all fine and dandy, and it makes black people feel like we are giving and loving and blah, 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 and I reject that narrative. Like, I don't think we need kumbaya moments. I think we need to have hard conversations that make everybody uncomfortable and really dive through it. I, I, so when I talk to Keith, my number one thing is like he said to me, like really tearfully and, and, and honestly, and I appreciate him saying it, but he said to me, like, you saved my life. And at that moment, I thought like, oh, this is where the kumbaya comes in. And I'm like, I know, let's hug it out. No, man. No, I'm not hugging it out with you. Like, you put both of our lives in danger because you're antagonizing this. And, you know, I'm just trying to be as decent of a human being as I possibly can. And so I, I didn't want to buy into that narrative. So to me, that interview was really about holding him accountable for what he had done. I think that that incident has not changed him at all. Because huh. um, he accused me of being a plant. Like, like I was a part of Antifa and we all planned it out. And I just... Wow. You know. so, it, so you put your life on the line for this guy, somebody who represented a really hateful ideology... And now, on some level, he's trying to kind of go back and change history on what your motivations were. Sure. Does that make you regret doing it? No, because, like, I mean, um, no, because, like, the, you know, my number one thing in kind of the way I'm looking at the world is that it's important that, for me, that I recognize his humanity, It'd be great if he saw me as a human being because Lord knows we need more of that. But I can't govern the way anybody else in the world operates. But I can control what I do. Yeah. That's Al Letson, everybody. The radio show is Reveal. Check it out. All right, this is Livewire Radio, and our musical guest this hour is one of our absolute favorites here on the show. Uh, she decided to live her dream of getting an MFA in writing not that long ago, and her skills with words and also music are on full display on her latest solo album, Goners. Please welcome Laura Gibson back to Livewire.
That's Laura Gibson right here on Livewire. All right, that is going to do it for our show this week. Thanks to our guests, Ian Carmel, Al Letson, Caitlin Kunkel, and of course, Laura Gibson. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. And Tim Harkins is our production director. Our editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, who says goodbye to the show this week. Jonathan, thank you for all of your work over the years, and we will really miss you, buddy. We've also got A. Walker Spring and Ethan Fox Tucker in our house band. And Elena Passarello is our announcer. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marriott L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we would like to thank member John Zander of Olympia, Washington for his support. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast or get our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew, thank you for listening and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.